The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, going through uh, the commandments. Tonight we come to the Third Commandment, but I desire to uh, just read all of the Ten Commandments that we might have uh, clearly in our mind, again, the Word of God. We've talked recently about the importance of the Ten Commandments. God spoke many commandments to the Israelites, but these ten were in the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark was the mercy seat, the place where God would meet with Israel, and that was the place where the atoning blood was poured out. This was the center of the government of Israel as well. The foundation of it was the law of God. And so we have seen the significance of the Ten Commandments. Listen now um, in Exodus 20, 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days... You shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now we're focusing on verse 7, which is the third commandment. Uh, commonly called taking the name of the Lord in vain. You shall not, it says in the NIV, misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I have studied many languages, and you're hearing now the one I can speak fluently. I've studied, I think, seven or eight languages, and this is the one I can speak, and I praise God for it. I'd hate to have no languages I could speak fluently. But uh, the name of God is different in each language. In Japanese, he's called Kamisama. In Swahili, Buana. In German, Gott. In French, Dieu. In German, uh, Gott, as I said. In Greek, Theos. In Latin, Deus. All of these sounds mean, in the ear of a believer, the same thing if they are trained biblically to think properly about God. So we bring to this issue of the third commandment, a central question. What is in a name? What is the significance of the name of God? 
Now, I've mentioned uh, in recent weeks that this name, the Lord, was held in such high honor and reverence by the Hebrews that they would not speak or pronounce it, but they would substitute another word in its place. The uh, four letters, Y-H-V-H, we bring over into the English. We commonly uh, pronounce Yahweh. They would not attempt that sound, but would rather say Adonai, a common word for my Lord. Lord with a lowercase l, the kind of thing you could say to a master or any kind of important official. They were very conscious to not uh, take the name of the Lord in vain, and I think it was this commandment in particular that they had in mind. Now, I'm no Shakespearean scholar, but the quote, what's in a name, comes from Romeo and Juliet. And I looked it up and read, and, and it was profound, the point that Shakespeare was making about a name. Juliet is struggling with the fact that Romeo uh, has a, a last name which connects him with a family with whom her own family is in a feud. And so she's frustrated. She says, oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Why are you called Romeo? Why does it have to be that name? Why couldn't you have a different name than that? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou will not, be but sworn my love and I'll no longer be a Capulet. I'll change my name. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, not a Montague. What's Montague? It is not hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. By any other name, so Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name. That's good advice. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Well, that's a nice idea, Juliet, but it's not going to happen. Because the significance of a name is that it is a history, is it not? Especially when connected with a person. She's wrestling with the fact that her name is Capulet and his Montague, and she wishes they could just throw those things off as though they were nothing. A name is a history, isn't it? It's a history of deeds, of reputation, of deeds that re reveal character. The deeds matter, the character matters more. Jesus put it this way when talking about false prophets and false teachers. He said in Matthew 7, 16 and following, By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree cannot bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And James put it this way in James 3.12, My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Well, I meditated on it. I thought a fig tree can bear olives if you change the significance of the sounds of fig tree and olive. Other than that, they can't. But if you were to do that, we wouldn't have any language left. We wouldn't be able to communicate with one another. And I believe language... The naming of things such that the name sticks and continues is one of the gifts of God to us in that we're created in the image of God. When Nathaniel was growing up, I was messing with him a little bit, and every time I'd hold up an apple, I'd say, banana, banana, until Christy caught me and said, don't do that to him. He's going to have enough trouble in life. We don't need him entertaining you forever by getting those things messed up. I just wanted those two fruits to be switched, that's all. 
just to see what would happen in his life. But uh, mom intervened and dad couldn't have his entertainment. The fact is that language means something and so do names. Names are significant. First and foremost, names are identification, aren't they? A form of identification, a, a label, a tag so that we can communicate. I can talk about things in this room that are not in this room and the image uh, pops up in your mind. And this, I believe, is exactly what God had in mind when he brought all of the animals to Adam to see what he would name them. And so Adam named each one. So the name was essential to the language. And this way, Adam could identify what the animal was. When he said the word for dog in whatever language he spoke, some people think it was Hebrew, I'm not so sure, but possible. Whatever it was, he was associating that sound made with the lips and tongue and teeth to the reality behind it that God had created. This is the gift of language. I've often wondered what happened when languages were, were uh, exchanged and switched at the Tower of Babel and what happened when they tried to communicate with one another and the communication troubles and difficulties they had as the same sounds uh, came out of their mouth or the same concept was in their mind but different sounds now came out and they couldn't communicate one with another. And so names are tags, they're identifiers. But names are more than that in the Bible, aren't they? They are character summaries of human beings. Uh, especially this was true of the way that the Israelites named their children. If you look at, for example, the story of Jacob, who became Israel, Jacob came out physically grasping the heel of his brother. Esau came out with a kind of a hairy coat all over. He had hair on his, on his body, and so he was called Esau, which means red or, or hairy, one or the other. But out came Jacob grasping his brother's heel, and he was named Jacob, he who grasped the heel. But it also had a metaphorical uh, significance, basically con artist. He's a con artist. He's somebody who grasped the heel is a con artist. And so later when he swindled, when Jacob swindled Esau out of his blessing, his birthright and his blessing, in Genesis 27, 36, Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. And so he said he's got a good name. His name is Con Artist, and that's exactly the way he's behaving. Well, later when he, of course, wrestles with the angel of God as Esau is ready to come back and kill him, I don't think Esau was riding at the head of 600 men to welcome him back. So glad to see you, brother. But he brought the 600 men because he wanted to take out vengeance on his brother. There was still that smoldering hatred. And so Jacob spent the night wrestling with an angel, and then uh, the Lord changed his name from Jacob to Yisrael, the one who wrestles with God. And so the names had a significance and a meaning. There was a time in our past, in, in English history, that people would name their children with names that meant something in that language, like faith or prudence or charity. We don't tend to do that as much anymore. Our names tend to signify something in a different language, like Michael, which is a Hebrew name, who is like our God. But you have to have a translation, and for the most part, we wouldn't walk around, we wouldn't name a child, who is like our God. But that's exactly what the Jews did with their names. So names were character summaries. This is true, especially in the case of Nabal, uh, whose name literally means fool. And I always thought that was interesting. Here's Abigail's husband, and he, was, he is a fool. And Abigail even comments, he is just like his name. His name means fool. And that's who he is. He's a fool. So please let the blame be on me, but don't wipe out uh, Nabal and his household. So the word means fool. fool. I remember being so struck by that when I was studying Hebrew, and I came across the word for, you know, we were doing some studies in the book of Proverbs, and this word Nabal came up, and I said, wait a minute, that's Nabal, that's right. His name is fool. And so names were character summaries. They also were connected to perhaps the significance of the mission of the life. 
And so sometimes an angel of the Lord would come and tell the parents what they would name the child because it was in some way connected with the mission. This is especially true of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Mary and Joseph did not have the privilege of naming Jesus. That wasn't for them to do because they didn't understand what his mission was. And so the angel of the Lord told uh, Joseph, you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh saves or salvation is from the Lord. Oh, what a great name for Jesus. Jesus came to save us from all our sins. And so names are character, summaries, and also focus somewhat on the mission of the person in their life. A name is also a reputation. It's a stored up history, isn't it? This is a consistent theme in the Bible. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is more desirable than great riches, to be esteemed better than silver or gold. It says in Ecclesiastes 7.1, 7, A good name is, fine, is better than fine perfume. Proverbs 25, 9 and 10 says, If you argue your case with a neighbor, do not betray another man's confidence, or he who hears it may shame you, and you will never lose your bad name. So it has to do with reputation. If you do something like that once, it will be hard for you ever to gain a reputation as a trustworthy man again. It has to do with reputation. It has to do with deeds connected with character. And so a requirement for elder, for example, in 1 Timothy 3.7 says, an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So if you're going to be an elder, you have to have a good reputation with unbelievers so that you can carry on the mission of the church. Now this idea of name as reputation, a good name, is one of the great blessings promised in the Bible, for example, to Abraham. In Genesis 12:2, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. So God promised to make Abraham's name great. He makes the same promise to, to uh, King David in 2 Samuel 7:9. He says, I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And so God was going to make the name of David great. Sometimes this idea of a good name or a good reputation or making a name for yourself is seized by e evil and immoral men. You get this again at the Tower of Babel. That was their motive for building that massive tower. They discovered that they could build bricks and bake them thoroughly, and thus they could build high towers because the bricks wouldn't crumble. So they had a mixture of technology and arrogance and it's a really dangerous mixture. And so in Genesis 11:4 it says, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the surface of the earth. Well, that's just the background of the idea of a name. How does it fit into the Ten Commandments? Well, God has a zeal for his own name. He has a zeal for his name. He's concerned what people think about the name of God. It makes a difference what they think. God makes much of his name so that sinners can be saved. Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when you're calling on the name of the Lord, what does that mean? Well, supposedly by then you've had some good preaching because you can't call on someone you've never heard of, right? And so there's got to be some preachers sent that do some preaching and they associate with the name of the Lord a whole body of truths that relate to his character and his great achievements in history. Oh, this is the Lord whose name I'm calling on. This is the one I'm trusting for the salvation of my soul. I'm going to call on the name of the Lord, the one who did that great act 
of Exodus, of drawing his chosen people out of Egypt by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and even more. I'm going to call on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead on the third day. This is the name I will trust. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so therefore, God was concerned that sinners would fear him and would trust in his name. This was the express stated purpose of the Exodus. Look back with me, if you would, at Exodus 9.16. In Exodus 9, I'm going to begin at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh. And say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see that? His motives there for the extended series of plagues, cycles of plagues there, is that he would make much of his own name, that he would be feared to the ends of the earth, that his reputation would go out to the ends of the earth and people would trust in him, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And in the proclamation of that name, sinners would hear and that they would trust in the Lord. This is the very thing that happened with Rahab in uh, Joshua chapter 2. Just listen, you don't have to turn there, but listen to what it says. In Joshua 2, 8 and following, it says, Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given, us, given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now, what motivated Rahab to come out and make that deal with the spies? Was it not God's great reputation? What he had done at the Red Sea? And this is exactly what God intended, that his name might be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And so David prayed in 2 Samuel 7.23, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself, and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. And so one of Israel's great tasks in their, in their calling as a nation was to make much of the name of God. And their behavior and history as a nation would go a long way to showing the name and the glory of God to the ends of the earth, that Gentiles might call on that name and be saved. And so a number of psalms say this kind of thing. Psalm 96.2, Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. But the problem was that Israel turned away from God and away from his covenant. They broke his laws and his commandments. And so they brought his name into disrepute. 
Daniel prayed concerning this in Daniel 9.19. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Very interesting expression there. In effect, God, you have married your reputation to your people. And now the Gentiles have come and trampled the temple, the place where you said you would put your name. The Gentiles have trampled it down. They have burned your city. And so the, the nations are probably wondering about you, God. So this is Daniel's motivation. And he prays that God's name might be exalted. Very much like Moses interceding for his people in Numbers 14. Say, Lord, if you wipe out your people and make out of me a nation, then the Egyptians will hear about it and all the other Gentile nations. And they'll say, you weren't able to finish your work. You began something and couldn't finish. What then will you do for your great name? And so Moses was concerned about the name and the reputation of God. So it was also Samuel when he prayed in 1 Samuel 12:22, For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. And so, as a result of Israel's sin, God's name was held in disrepute. This is exactly what Paul wrote about in Romans 2:24. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What a grievous thing to say. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And so God was very zealous to restore the Israelites back to their own land, that there would be another temple built in the place of the first one that had been destroyed. In Ezekiel 39.7, God said, I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. Well, that's the background for the name of God. How then should we understand this prohibition? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, literally, the Hebrew says to take up or to carry to some degree the name. That's what it means. It means to bear the name or to carry the name of the Lord your God. And it says in vain in some of the English translations. That's a good translation. It means for falsehood or vanity or lightness as though it were nothing so that in the end it was vain for you to have taken up the name, this kind of thing. The word is used in Psalm 108.12, give us aid against the enemy for the help of man is worthless. Well, let's take that idea and put it in. Don't take up the name for worthlessness in the end, for vanity, for emptiness. I think the main idea here is that God cannot be mocked. If you were to take up his name in your mouth for vanity, for emptiness, as though it were nothing, God will not be mocked. He cannot be mocked. It says so in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. An initial and I think most clear application of this command is blasphemy against the Lord. To speak God's name in a vain or flippant or perhaps even blasphemous way, even to curse the name of the Lord. And so in Leviticus 24, verse 10 and following, it says, The son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse. So they brought him to Moses. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the blasphemer outside the camp, all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. 
the entire assembly must stone him, whether alien or native-born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. And then in verse 23 of Leviticus 24, Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And so I think that's the immediate application. Blasphemy. Speaking the name of God, the name of the Lord, in a light or empty or flippant way, as though it meant nothing at all. What's interesting to me is that this is the very sin or crime that Jesus Christ was condemned for. Isn't that fascinating? That Jesus had blasphemed the name. At the height of his trial, Jesus was asked if he was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And so they handed him over to Pilate on this very charge. But the fascinating thing is that the Apostle Paul said that he himself was the real blasphemer. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, Man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. Now, how was Paul a blasphemer? Well, I think it's because he blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he meant. I don't think he ever took the name of the Holy One of, the, the Holy One of Israel in vain. He probably was just like any other Pharisee, very, very careful about what he said about the Most High. No, he was a blasphemer, said Paul, because he took the name of Jesus Christ in vain. And so Jesus said in Matthew 12:31 and 32, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Listen to this. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Isn't that incredible? But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Now, we tend to focus on the unforgivable sin. What does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit? I don't want to talk about that tonight. Jesus said there is a general and open, wide forgiveness for those who blaspheme the name of the Son of Man. And you know why? Because Jesus' name is blasphemed constantly by unbelievers. Constantly. And Jesus said that it will be forgiven if they repent. If they just turn, anything you say against me, I will forgive. And the Apostle Paul said it's true. I was once a blasphemer. But in order that God's grace and mercy might be shown and displayed in me, I was given forgiveness for my sin. Now, what should a Christian do then with the third commandment? How should we understand, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Well, first, exalt the name of God as a holy thing in your mind and in your mouth. I think that 1 Peter 3.15 says it very well. But in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Set him apart as holy, as the high and lifted up one, as the exalted one, before whom the seraphim cover their faces. This is the God of heaven. This is your God. Set him apart as holy in your mind and certainly with your mouth. Secondly, strive to know and revere his name more and more. I love this verse, Psalm 9:10. Those who know your name will trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Isn't that a marvelous verse? In other words, the better you know the name of God, the more faith you're going to have. 
If you feel like you lack faith, then get to know God's name better and call on that name again and again and he will show himself faithful and reliable. And so therefore, revere the name of the Lord and get to know his name, know his great deeds and know his great character. Obviously, it should go without saying to never speak the name of the Lord or the name of Christ in vain or as a light or flippant thing. I shouldn't have to even mention this, but it clearly does mean that, that we should not blaspheme God's name or speak it as a swear word or a curse word. It should go without saying. But more than that, we should follow the very first inscription of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who lives in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May it be held in honor. And may people who see my life, the way that I live, may they hallow your name by how I live, by my attitude toward God, by my holiness, by the good deeds that I do, that people may see them and glorify God in heaven. May your name be held in honor. Why? So that sinners can be saved. So that they can call on that holy name of God and they can be saved. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Not despised, not profaned, not held down as a low thing, but may it be hallowed. And finally, and very practically, use other people's blasphemy to preach the gospel. We already have in Matthew 12 a promise that all kinds of blasphemies against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You could even use that when you hear somebody, a co-worker, a non-Christian, say the name of the Lord in vain. I know somebody that uh, is a college basketball player and a strong Christian, and he would hear the name of the Lord constantly in vain. And every time he did, he would say, may his holy name be praised. May his holy name be praised. People stopped doing it around him, you know? They got to be careful around him because every time he heard the name of Jesus, may his holy name be praised. That's a great entryway to preaching the gospel. Oh, and by the way, do you know that there's forgiveness for the blasphemy you just spoke? Isn't it wonderful? Let me tell you a promise that Jesus has made. Any blasphemy spoken against his name will be forgiven if you simply repent and honor his name. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. What a great witnessing opportunity. I remember once I was playing basketball with a friend of mine. He's a missionary now in Africa. His name was Rod Showbrook. And the two of us were playing two uh, teenage uh, young men. And we were losing, actually, but I, I remember that. But we started to make a comeback, and a few things went our way, and one of them spoke the name of the Lord in vain. And Rod said, wait a minute, wait, wait. I'll never forget the basketball just kind of bounced until it stopped. And they were looking at us, what, what? And he said, well, you just said the name of my Savior. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I hold that name in honor. Can we not speak it in such a light way? And we had a great witnessing opportunity right there in the middle of a basketball game. So let's not misuse the name of the Lord our God. Let's not take it up and bear his name and his reputation as a light thing. Let us realize that when people look at us, they, they see God and that we represent God. Not that we are God, but his reputation is with us. Let us not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.